Good morning, everyone. Um, it's really good to see y'all. Um, I think I know everyone here, but if there's anyone on Zoom that I don't know, I'm John. I'm one of the elders here, and I got the privilege of opening up the Word of God with you today uh, while Ben's out of town. And I'm especially excited that, oh, sorry, I'm supposed to tell y'all to let the kids go, huh? Looks like the kids have it figured out, though. They know what's up. They've done this before. I'm especially excited that I get to see y'all in person here. Um, the last couple times I've preached, it's been standing on my porch, staring at a computer camera, hoping everyone can hear me on the other side. So it's really good to see y'all, and I invite Andy's heckling while I'm up here. So I'm counting on you, man. Um, so this morning, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews again. We're in chapter 8, starting out uh, in verses 1 through 5 that Hannah read earlier. So you can go ahead and get turned there. Um, and as you may have noticed when she was reading it, uh, this is the point in this sermon-like letter to the Hebrews where the author or pastor stops and says, all right, this is the main point. This is what I've been trying to tell you. This is the most important thing I have for you. So here I am with the opportunity to try to unpack that for y'all. So um, before we go any further, I'm going to stop and pray for God to help me out with that. Uh, Lord, um, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this space that we're in, for this opportunity we have to meet together in fellowship, um, to see one another face to face. And Lord, I thank you for this relatively miraculous weather that even though it's um, June in Texas, I'm only a little bit sweaty here and that there's a breeze picking up now. Uh, Lord, I just pray that as we open up the word today, your spirit would be with me. Your spirit would be with everyone hearing this here, hearing this on Zoom, um, that you would just open up their hearts to receive whatever truth you have for them. Um, I pray you would uh, just give us faith to see the way you're working in the world around us and uh, give us faith to conform our lives to a pattern of what you've set before us. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, so as I said, we're jumping into the main point of Hebrews, and it's a little bit overwhelming, uh, but also exciting because he's had, the author's had a lot of great points so far in this book. And we've been looking at that pattern since the beginning of this year of exhorting Christians by exalting Christ. And he's had some incredibly compelling exaltations of Christ and incredibly convicting warnings of what's in store for us if we don't respond properly to that. Um, so when we look at the main point here in chapter 8, it's also interesting because his big point ends up being that there are things going on around us that we can't see, that Jesus is actively working around us in ways that we can't see. And it's not that big of a stretch for us to accept that there are things going on that we can't see. I mean, like that breeze that I just mentioned that picked up, we can't see it, but we know it's there. Um, there are different forces in the world around us that we have either a lot of awareness about every day that we can't see or that we take for granted and never think about. Um, obviously, over the past year, whatever your level of awareness of dirt and bacteria and germs was um, 15 months ago, you spent a lot of time thinking a lot more about a certain virus than you had before. It's changed the way we work, the way we teach our kids, the way we interact with our friends and family, and the way we do church. It's the reason that I was talking to y'all on Zoom the last two times that I was preaching, and it's the reason we're still here outside in this garage. Um, so whatever your 
feelings or opinions are about all those things, and I'm sure there are a lot of them, no one can really deny that the world has looked different over the past year because of this unseen virus. There are also things that we think about pretty much not at all that have huge impacts on our lives. Um, I think it's because of the King Kong versus Godzilla viewing last week with the guys for Ben's birthday that um, all the gravity inversions and anti-gravity engines have me thinking more about gravity and how it works. And it's something that, like I said, it impacts absolutely everything we do every minute of the day. And nothing would exist the way we know it without that. But I'd never stop to think about how gravity is impacting me. And I don't really know how it works. I don't even think scientists, um, maybe Will knows how it works. He's, a, he's a, got a P nuclear science PhD. But in general, I don't think anyone really knows what the mechanisms are that make gravity work. But it still can't be denied. Um, I heard someone put it well on this podcast I was listening to yesterday. They said, you can deny that gravity exists, but you can't step off a roof and decide not to fall. So you can live in denial of it, but the reality of gravity is always going to bring you back to Earth. Um, so while we realize these invisible forces, earthly invisible forces, um, impact our lives, too often we're unaware that there are spiritual heavenly invisible forces in Christ that are also at work. And just as a correct understanding of the invisible forces like germs and gravity can inform our proper interaction with the world around us, a correct understanding of invisible heavenly realities in Christ should be influencing the way we interact with the world around us. And that kind of understanding can only be achieved through faith. That's what we'll see today and as we continue through Hebrews can only be achieved through faith, which reveals the invisible realities of heaven and renews our understanding of the visible realities of this world. So let's get into the text here. The first thing we're going to see as we open it up is how faith reveals invisible heavenly realities. Let's look at Hebrews 8.1 together. <clears throat> now the main point in what has been said or what is being said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So like I said, we're diving right into that main point. And as a point of clarity there, this term main point, um, depending on your translation, it might say chief point or just the point, is not a summary of everything he's saying, but it's the uh, apex of what he's saying. It's the most important thing of what he has been saying and what he is continuing to say. And I think it's referring to at least this priesthood section of Hebrews that starts in chapter 4 and goes through 10, um, perhaps even the whole book. Um, but this is the most important part of this section to the author. And what he says there is the most important point is that we have such a high priest. So, as I said, this is the most important point of this whole section. So when he says we have such a high priest, he's saying all these promises and statements about the office of this greater high priest that we've read in the past few chapters and we're going to continue reading in the next couple chapters, they all are fulfilled in Jesus. So just to remind you about what some of those promises are, he's saying we have such a high priest who was appointed by God, who became a priest through the oath of God, who had no need to sacrifice for his own sins, because though he was tempted in every way, so that he can empathize with us in our weaknesses, he was without sin. He remained holy, blameless, and pure. Because of this, he's able to offer himself as a sacrifice once for all, 
washing away all sin and saving sinners completely and eternally. And after his death, he is resurrected, becoming an eternal priest on the power of an indestructible life. He's ascended into heaven, as we just read. He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, going before us into the presence of God to intercede for us on our behalf. So this is the kind of priest he's saying we have in Jesus. And he continues in this chief point that's saying the most important part about that is what Jesus is doing right now, where Jesus is right now, sitting, taking his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. This point is so important to the author of Hebrews that five times throughout this book, he's reiterated in different words. He's said, um, Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the throne five times from the very beginning in chapter one in his first exaltation of Christ to chapter 12, one of the last exhortations. He keeps using this point, reminding us that Christ is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And we've opened that up in some sermons before, and we're going to do that some more in the next couple chapters as we get into details about the tabernacle and the priestly services there. Uh, But the important thing to remember and understand is that high priests never sat down because their work was never done. In this tabernacle that we're going to talk about, there was no chair for the priests. The only thing resembling a seat is the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant, which is sometimes called the mercy seat. That's where the presence of God resides, and the priests weren't even allowed to look at it, much less sit on it. But because of Jesus' perfect life and his sacrifice, he's able to walk up and sit on the throne in the presence of God. So let's continue through the text and look at what Jesus is doing there on the throne. So verses 1 through 3 says, Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord set up, not man, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. So we're told that right now, even though Jesus has completed his sacrificial work, we've read that many times in Hebrews, that this sacrifice was completed once for all, that Jesus is still actively working on our behalf. He's ministering or serving, depending on the translations you have, He's ministering to us before God in this true heavenly tabernacle. So let's remember back to chapter 5, kind of the beginning of this priesthood section, the two roles that were given for the high priest. Chapter 5, verse 1 of Hebrews says that every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God and to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the high priest's two jobs were represent the people before God, and offer gifts and sacrifices. And like we said, the sacrifice of Jesus is completed once for all. That portion of his work as the high priest is completed. But the work of Christ as our representative before God is an ongoing work that he's continually serving us through. We just saw that two weeks ago, the last time we met in the end of chapter 7, that it says that Jesus is living forever. So he has a permanent priesthood. He is always able to, to save us completely because he's always living to intercede for us. So church, the stages of the Christian life parallel that work 
um, of Jesus as our high priest. As we know, in the same way that Jesus in his sacrificial work is completed once for all with one sacrifice for all sins, our salvation is secure and complete. The moment we trust in Christ, the moment we believe that um, we believe that he has died for our sins and God has raised him from the dead. But this second portion of the high priestly work that is ongoing as he's continually ministering to us in heaven parallels to our calling to be an active participant in that relationship with him. Um, So through faith and the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're able to discern the invisible work of Christ. We're able to recognize what's going on around us. Um, and we're able to interact with him through faith and through prayer. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Hebrews 11.1, 1, as we're going to get to it <clears throat> in a few weeks, says that faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for. It's certainty, confidence of things that are not seen. And church, personally, I've never seen Jesus with my own eyes. I'm not going to say that doesn't happen because I think God can reveal himself however he wishes, but I think... Uh, most people here can relate with my experience that we haven't seen Jesus with our eyes. But I can confidently tell you that he's there, that he's working. Um, just because we don't see him, we can observe the world and know that Jesus is working. So let's think back to gravity. Like I said before, um, I don't know how gravity works. I've never seen gravity. I don't know if you can see gravity. Um, but I can confidently tell you that it's there and it's working. I can pick up a pen or anything and hold it up and know that every time I let go of it, it's going to fall. I'm glad that worked out. Would have been crazy. <clears throat> In the same way as that, without seeing Christ, through faith we can have confidence that he is working in the world. I've seen answered prayers. I've seen people freed from sin and from sickness. When I see these things, when we see these things in the world, we face a choice, right? We can recognize them as the work of Christ. We can give Christ glory for them, and we can grow in awe of him. Or we can call it a coincidence. We can deny that Christ is at work. We can deny ourselves the opportunity to recognize the glory of Christ and to grow into a deeper state of worship and a deeper relationship with him. So I have one more note to make on this role of Jesus before we move on. And it's also a shameless plug for the men's and women's summer groups on prayer Because if we believe what is said here, that Christ is sitting at the throne of God ministering for us, we should long to interact with him and participate in that work. And the way we do that is through prayer. And I'll be the first to say that this is a plug for myself as much as any of you because prayer is hard for me. It doesn't come naturally. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity this summer to just understand prayer better, understand its role in my life and in the life of believers. Um, so like we said, Abby said earlier in the announcements, if you're not signed up for that, it's not too late. The women started last week, but you can still jump in. The guys are starting this week. So uh, y'all can talk to me or anyone else, and they'll point you in the right direction to get in a group. Um, so now we move on. The author goes on from this discussion of heavenly realities brings us back to earth in verse 4 to explain how the standard practices of the earthly priests are designed to point to the heavenly work of Christ. So let's look at verses 4 and 5. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, 
since there are those who offer gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For he says, See that you make all things by the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. So now that we've understood these heavenly realities, he's explained the invisible realities of heaven. The author points to the purpose behind the priestly system on earth. And we see here an immediate contrast between the true heavenly tabernacle that we read about before that Jesus serves in and the earthly priests who serve in a copy or a shadow of the heavenly things, which is in the earthly tabernacle that Moses built. And it says that he built it according to the pattern which was shown to him on the mountain. And here the author of Hebrews is doing this tactic that he loves to use where he just throws an Old Testament quote out there and he says, God said this. He doesn't introduce and say, it is written or according to the scriptures, just God said this to Moses. And he also assumes that everyone knows exactly what he's talking about and this entire story of the Exodus from Egypt comes back into their mind. So to help you out with that, um, the context around this being said is, like I said, it's just the Exodus from Egypt. So the Israelites have just been freed from hundreds of years of slavery um, in Egypt under Pharaoh. They've walked across the Red Sea that God parted for them, and they've spent three months now walking through the desert, grumbling and complaining about not having enough food and being tired and the water tasting bad, and God's been blessing them every step of the way, but that's a different story. Um, Here they've now arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai, the first major stopping point in their journey, and Israel sets up camp at the foot of the mountain while Moses goes up to meet with God. So while Moses is meeting with God on the mountain, he receives the law. And along with that, he receives the Ten Commandments, all the sacrificial system, and the design for the tabernacle. And God clearly feels that the design for this tabernacle is pretty important because while we have one chapter in Genesis describing the creation of the entire universe, we have six chapters of God telling Moses the plans for this tabernacle, exactly how to build every tent pole, every curtain, every piece of furniture. And throughout that whole description of the tabernacle, he repeats this phrase where he'll describe part of it to Moses and say, make sure you build it exactly like this. So it's clear that it's very important to God that this tabernacle is built very specifically according to his plans. The reason for that, and the reason for that that's revealed, revealed here in Hebrews, is that this tabernacle, every detail of it, is designed to be a picture of heaven. It's designed to look like what it would be like to worship God in heaven. And the author of Hebrews is stressing this point here. When he calls it a copy, a shadow, or a pattern of the heavenly things. The earthly tabernacle was never designed for its own sake or for its own glory or to make Israel great. It's just a tent. It's just a fancy tent that was designed in every aspect to point to heaven, to point to the reality of what heaven looks like and be heaven on earth, to be the place where God's presence would reside among Israel and where Israel would interact with him. The point was that when the Israelites looked at this tabernacle and the service of the priests there, they would get a glimpse of what heaven looks like. And at the end of chapter 7, we heard kind of the introduction of this new covenant idea that we're going to be transitioning into. We're going to talk more about it next week. 
So the idea that we've heard is that this old covenant, the Jewish priestly system, was completely fulfilled in Christ. The method of the old Jewish believers for seeing Jesus and seeing God's work was this tabernacle. In the new covenant that we're going to expand on more in the coming weeks, we have a similar calling to live as a pattern or an example of Christ. So the apostles and Peter, in their epistles to the churches and their personal letters to the leaders of the churches, several times call believers to be imitators of the apostles and of Christ, to follow their example, and to set an example or a pattern for believers in the world. In 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul, urging Timothy, tells him to set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And this set an example, that word example is the same as pattern here. It's translated different in English, but it's the same word. So previously, we were using this tabernacle as a pattern of heaven, and now the lives of believers as the image of God are meant to be a pattern of what it looks like for Jesus to serve in heaven. So just as Christ serves us as our priest in heaven before God, we need to serve those around us as an example of a life that's dedicated to him. And toward the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, um, in chapter 12, he gives a beautiful exhortation of what it looks like to live that kind of life, a life that is dedicated as an example of service to Christ. In Romans 12, 1 to 2, he writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is our role in this world, and this is my prayer for this church. That we would look upon the mercy of God revealed in Christ's sacrifice for our sins. We would be compelled to offer every aspect of our lives as a living sacrifice in service to God. That we would not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead we would conform ourselves and let the Lord through his spirit conform us into the pattern that is laid out for us in scripture. The heavenly patterns laid out for us. That our minds would be renewed through faith so that we would be able to recognize the work of God around us, and that we would be able to understand and live according to his will for us. So church, that's the calling here. To go out, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, love your neighbors, love your enemies in that way. Lay your life on the line every day as a picture of Jesus to the world. Let's pray.